reading from Luke 10:25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit in eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? Was, was is your reading of it? So he answered and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered him and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said to him, He who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily today. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to him, the one who had mercy upon him? Go and do likewise. It's the word we have from Jesus this morning in the Gospels. Um, we have another question, too. That one began with a question, a question of, of uh, which of these commandments is the greatest. And Jesus asks the lawyer that back, and he responds correctly, a phrase that we're familiar with, too, that that the love of God and the love of neighbor are sort of the peak. Although one of the challenges, I think, that we have in the modern world is that we can abstract those from the narrative context. So to say that, that um, you know, what are the greatest commandments? Well, it's to love God and to love neighbor. Um, in, in, Jesus, in the lawyer's summary, or when Jesus gives that answer too, what the actual thing that sort of comes out is this teaching from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And it's from this people who have been freed. If you read the passage around that, it's about this memory and release from slavery. It's not just love any God. It's love the God who has released you from bondage, who has released you from slavery. Oddly enough, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, I love contemporary Christianity sometimes. We're like, you know, the Old Testament's weird. Leviticus, we're not going to count. It's really about loving God and loving your neighbor. 
not realizing the instruction to love your neighbor comes from the book of Leviticus. Um, Here we are bound in those patterns that are very old. And they come from a particular relation and a particular care from that God. That that the God of Israel has, has guided people in that way. It's one of the, I think, challenges of um, certainly the modern church is that we often forget the Jewishness of Jesus and the Israelite history that we are grafted into. It all becomes sort of this free-floating sort of be-good-person type stuff that's not rooted in the narrative traditions that it's birthed out of. Anyways, the second question um, is uh, when the foundations are being destroyed, what shall the righteous do? I picked that psalm. It's one that comes to mind often for me because I think that oftentimes it's easy to look at our world and see the foundations being destroyed. The question about what is it to be human today? What is it to be a person? What is it to be a husband, a wife, a parent? What is it to grow up? Um, what is it to be in relationship across difference? So many of these things have been pushed um, to the point where we don't know as much as we used to. It seems like everything's being reinvented and, reinvented and destroyed. And when the psalmist asks that question, he's asked, should I flee, should I go? But what he finds is that he looks to the temple. It's for the people of God to find resilience in God when that happens. And what I've been trying to say throughout this sermon series is this image from the book of Jonah, that that Jonah, as he is in the belly of the whale, so too the church exists in the belly of a beast. And we exist in the belly of the beast sort of always. Uh, Jonah being Israel, Israel existing in exile uh, during this part. So too the church exists in exile. The question of of what um, shall the church, what shall Israel do when the foundations are being destroyed, is a continual one. There's no society in which it's not asked. We might think we're in a unique time, and there might be unique neuroses to our time, but it's one that we're always continually called to ask. You see this in Britain in um, uh, the 1600s, 1700s, with them asking questions of the slave trade, that that's not meant to be. That represents a disordered foundation-destroying world trading people like that. And so this is where the church always is, is asking itself, where is the city of man not living up to the city of God? We have different answers to that question. We'll get into that more in the sermon. Um, But but part of what the sermon series has been about is, is that domestic monastery idea this idea of, of, of what is a monastery. Uh, a monastery is not so much a place set apart for monks and nuns as a place set apart, period. And I was thinking about that again this week. This is very much a place set apart um, uh, to be in exile, to be swallowed up, to be consumed, uh, to be out of place in the world is to be in a place set apart. 
Those two quotes have been next to each other for five weeks and I finally figured it out. Um, it's like, ah, um, that, that this is a place set apart too. And in this place set apart, there's a, a, a training. Now, this is, um, Eugene Peterson used this phrase, uh, eschesis. This is, this is sort of this uh, Greek word for um, uh, training your body up. And what happened is the early church used this word to talk about training the soul up, often actually training the body up too. When, when they thought of prayer and when they thought of, of, of disciplining themselves, they did not think of just the immaterial. They thought of their kneeling, of their fasting, of their struggles against the flesh in a very real way. So much too that some in the tradition perhaps maybe took it too far um, uh, with self-whipping self and stuff like that too. But, but they actually keenly thought, how do we train our bodies up for that? Peterson, in his commentary in the book of Jonah, suggests that being in the belly of the beast is where we find ourselves being trained, whether we want to or not. Being in exile as the church or Israel, or being in our own exile from ourselves as people, is often a time to say, what can I retrain within myself? What can I bring about for something else? And as Jonah's question has been sort of how is mercy that was the last sermon series and i've talked a lot about today is jonah's question was how is mercy shown to those who are your captors is god's grace big enough what is the the question for us i think comes from the book of jeremiah which we've read every sunday so far in this sermon series is this idea of build houses settle down plant gardens eat what they produce have a family and pray for the peace of where god has sent you because you are not there by accident We've been called into this place. While we might look around and seeing the foundations being destroyed, it is not for us to wish to be someplace else. But it is to be the people of God who build houses, who settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, have families. That this is the task the church has been called into, as Israel was called into it before. As the world is not its permanent home, it can... Um, begin to say, how do we exist in this place in which God's peace and time flourish? How can we be in this spot? How can we inhabit here? And so this has been sort of the challenge. Now, last week we looked at some of the ways in which Israel survived in exile, um, the ways in which the patterns that they took on, from their intentional having of families and studying together to their rigorous sort of... Um, uh, religious dimension to their prayer lives is that what Israel used to survive exile in distinct ways was this um, way of sort of training themselves to be the people of God when they had no temple or place. And so, too, that's the challenge for the church. Now, one of my favorite scenes about this is in the book of Daniel. Uh, John Tyson was the one who pointed this out to me. Is Daniel, at one point, is praying at the time of the evening sacrifice, the book of Daniel says. Yet there is no temple and there is no evening sacrifice. That the Jews in exile still kept sacred time in their minds. It's the time of the evening sacrifice. Where? Nowhere at this time. And so, too, it is for the church to find ways to inhabit. And when we talked about prayer last week, to find ways, and I think a lot of what the sermon series is about in the end is this notion of reclaiming space and time. 
that if we are going to be the distinct people of God in the world, it will have a lot to do with how we have space and how we have time. How we live into that. Being renewed towards the face of God while the foundations are being destroyed. So part of... um, Today is the worst kind of sermon, so I'm going to be watching the clock very closely, in the sense of, like, I have, like, some grab bag things that were in the book that I think are important that I'm going to talk through, but I'm going to stop when I need to stop, and so if we don't get to them all, we don't get to them all. Um, But there are some things uh, that I wanted to talk about. And then next week, because of the discussion on Tuesday night, the last two chapters of the book, I believe, are about death. The sermon series doesn't end today, but what I want to do is just take death as the final chapter for next week, the final sermon, to think about um, what does it mean as creatures to die? What does it mean that death is God's enemy, but death is also a suggestion of our finitude, too, that we are not infinite in the way God is? And what is the practices and care around death that has set the church and Israel apart in times and spaces, too? Anticipating a very low Sunday. (laughs) Um, um, but I think that there's life-giving truth in that. And it's one because as we live longer and and technology seems to push off death as long as possible, it's a truth we never really hear. Stanley Harawas in an interview, we'll talk, I'll have the actual quote up next week, but in an interview towards the end of the pandemic, he said, I feel bad for pastors because they have to sit with people and remind them that they will die. They've lived without the truth that death is the end for all of us. He said they should rejoice in being freed from their self-centered narcissism um, to find their mission then in witnessing to the reign of God. Um, That that in accepting that, we're freed from our self-worth our self-worship, our self-projects, our self-completion, our self-goals, because we know that there's an end to this that is not in ours. One of the, one of the things that uh, Rollheiser says often in the book is time is not our time, it's God's time. Time is not our time, it's God's time. If we are going to talk about space and time, the realization that time is not our time, despite all the ways we have to capture it into productive moments today. Um, I'm waiting for a new story about a man who was listening to a podcast while his wife was giving birth. It was just, I couldn't let that be unproductive time. I needed to do something. So I learned how to cook better while she gave birth. Isn't that a beautiful story? Um, he was thinking of the future in lovely and beautiful ways. Um, everything we can capture into productive time today. Um, and so if time is God's time, how do we live into our commitments, into our prayers, in a way that suggests that we know that time isn't just our time to be productive, to capture all of life that we can, and then to die on top. Um, that is not the space for us. Um, just because I've said it every other week, I love this, the story from Bonhoeffer about that you have to be stronger than these tormentors you find everywhere today. This needs to be stronger than that. This is something I find missing is that the more somebody is worried about the state of the world often, the less they are invested in making their own household, personality, and lifestyle stronger than the forces they're concerned about. It's almost like being concerned about it is the way I get stronger. 
No, being concerned, uh, concerned about it is the way you fall more and more into the disorder of the age. Which isn't to say, don't be concerned about the foundations being destroyed. Don't be concerned about the disorder of the age. But to say that the way in which we survive through that is not by making sure I have a 24-7 endless loop of the disorder of the age, but that as I see that, I build more and more spaces where I can hear the goodness that I'm called to live into, that I can be into that. You have to know uh, your tormentors. You have to know your enemy in some degrees to know where they're coming for you, but that's only so you can strengthen yourself in positive ways. Um, this is our one, three, five. Defines church is called to be a witness to the reign of God. Our theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Word, confession, table, order, and tradition. Today's sermon will connect... Um, quite a bit to order and table again, this sort of being neighbors in the table way. But I was asked um, uh, by somebody, or Kelly was asked, and and then it gets back to me. Some of you know that and use that to your advantage. Some of you don't know that, and it's what happens anyways. Um, So be warned. Um, If you tell Kelly, she'll probably tell me. Um, But about order in particular, um, that, that as we talk about the order and how we live into order and be into order, like, um, is there a temptation to too much order? Um, and there's certainly a truth there is that that order imposed by humans can become sort of totalitarian. It becomes this force that sort of wrecks and destroys. It, become, uh, it can be suffocating. Um, now, the divine order, I think, is captured good in this quote from well captured well in this quote from G.K. Chesterton, the more I considered Christianity, the more that I had found it established a rule and an order. The chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. That, that as we, one, I don't think the church, defiance church, Christians in the world today, perhaps are in the spot of imposing too much order, at least on the world. I do hear from churches that tend to be Um, totalitarian in their ways in which they control the lives of their congregants. Um, But I don't see that temptation in the world as much. And certainly we have um, uh, the ability to impose that too much on ourselves too. But I think keeping in mind what Chesterton says, that the, the idea for this is so that good things can run wild. One of my professors used to talk about doctrine, uh, church doctrine as the fencing in which the, the life and the goodness happens. So that we have fencing sort of to keep ourselves in so that we can play. This is, you know, if you were um, to say that we're going to play baseball, but no bases and no foul balls, you wouldn't be playing baseball. To say that we're going to be Christian and we're going to live in this way and behind sort of moving into the space. Um, that was my answer to the question of order. Um, but one of the things I want to talk about is, is our formation. I didn't mean to put plan on there. Um, our formation plan at Def- Defiance Church, or our discipleship, is part of what the sermon series was about, was trying to capture um, what does it mean to be a Christian at Defiance Church that's not um, necessarily distinct from other Christians, but how do we keep that together? And one of the things in churches that I admire today often is they're finding more and more ways to adopt rules of life together, that, that what's a rule of life that they can all practice? 
Um, and while I find that um, helpful and good, it's an old tradition, very old, um, uh, of sort of finding it in this way, it reminds me that we are always looking for some technology to save us. If I could plan my life perfectly, if there was an app or something, is this is the app store is probably one of the places where you see this the most. If you type in meditation into the app store, you will get over a thousand hits, probably a lot more than that. Um, this idea of that, like, we can just optimize our life. And so my concern is, well, I had long planned to talk about, like, what would a rule of life look like for Defiance Church? I realized my craving for that is so much so that if we had the perfect system, all would be easy. The promise of, of technology for us is often um, uh, frictionless. We'd be like skating. We'd be like just moving through life easy. And we think that with the right planning, the right technology, the right sort of gifts, that we can craft a way in which then our lives become this sort of free skating thing. So it became clear to me that, that that's not what I could do. Uh, and there's a challenge in that, too, because I think it becomes a bit too much order as well. Um, order becomes more uh, uh, overriding in those phrases. Um, and so uh, as I was thinking about that, I was, uh, came back to this image, which I shared last week, which was um, Peterson calls this sort of historic vision of what, what Christian formation is, is that you worship with the Lord's day, with your community, that you go forth daily with the Psalms. Very simple. Um, you go forth with the Psalms. The traditional pattern of praying the Psalms is doing them all in a month. Um, I'll put a, uh, an idea structure for that in the email. That you would have your recollected prayers throughout your days and without your life, and that you would come back praying the Psalms and come back to worship. This, I think, is, is not, um, they all have the habit of being uh, the promise of technology, but if we're going to have to choose, sometimes the best choice is backwards. Um, to say that maybe this is where we find formation. But this is the second image that he accompanies with this, is to say that we exist under the, the word of God um, for what we've been talking about, the order of God, or whatever else you want to say, that, that, that there's sort of this way in which um, there is this word of God, and notice it is not us. It is not the church. This is why we witness to it. It is something outside of us. Um, and then we live in the soil of our spirituality. Common worship, daily psalms, recollected prayers, daily psalms, common worship. Very simple. Um, uh, and, it, and then he says that there is a tool shed at the bottom here, well-stocked with the 14 disciplines, he's, he counts up to 14, used when needed, left alone when not needed. Um, that, to me, seems like a beautiful place for the church to be. We've been gifted our daily or common worship together. God has given us the language of the Psalms to form our prayers. He's given us our days and our work to sort of make the soil and spirituality of our lives and the meaning that comes in that. And then what the church has, when needed, are the 14 disciplines and tools to be used as needed. Peterson uses two great, he's good at, good at examples, much better than I am. Um, but he talks about one is that, like, not understanding the soil of your spiritual life means that though you are in Maine, you might plant oranges. Um, 
uh, each of our lives is different. Um, The book has that contrast between the monk who can pray all day and the mother who is constantly said, uh, mom, 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 with a hand always reaching out. How do we live attentive lives in those, both those spaces, one not being better than the other? The monk may be able to apply all 14 disciplines, but other people may not have the time or the space. The second one he uses is that, is that if you use the tools poorly, you destroy what's growing there. For me or for anyone to over-program our spiritual lives, not knowing the soil of where you are, can damage what's already growing. This is where I think the church should lean away from judgment upon other people. Um, Lean away from thinking we often know what's best for their lives. Certainly there are spaces to speak truth and goodness to one another, but so often it's just, you should do this, that'll fix everything, not realizing what might be growing where they are. So, sticking with that, the 14 disciplines, as Peterson listed, the, because I knew somebody would ask, and I cannot memorize 14 things. Um, uh, he said, our spiritual reading, spiritual direction, meditation, confession, bodily exercise, fasting, Sabbath-keeping, dream interpretation, retreats, pilgrimage, almsgiving, tithing, journaling, sabbaticals, and small groups. Um, you could add in, I'm sure, the Catholic works of mercy in some sense, Feeding the Poor, uh, one of my favorite Catholic works of mercy says, I, I mean, it's comical, it's rebuking the dumb. I like, like, it's like, don't let dumb people do dumb things. Rebuke the dumb is my favorite. Um, uh, uh, again, that's maybe that temptation that we know how to fix other people's spiritual lives, but I think it means something more on like the, you know when you're doing something dumb and it's just worthy of rebuke. Um, uh, Anyways, but, but he has 14. We, you could come up with more. You could come up with less. Um, I've, I've heard of dream interpretation. It's not one. If that's what you're looking for, I'll find someone. <laughs> um, uh, but but the, this is his sort of way of looking biblically and traditionally at what the tool shed might have to offer. Um, so that's sort of that goal of to say that that we want to be simple in that. We want to have the resources available. We want to have this. But really what I feel like we're called into in a season is being those people who, who bring a little bit of order to the houses we build, the, the gardens we plant, the marriages and families we have, and then to be called into the worship of God through corporate worship, the Psalms, and then living our lives, um, attempting to live a holy life. So the way that this sermon series has gone is that we have, the first sermon series was what does it mean to build, plant, have family, and exile. The second one I really focused and zeroed in on order. The third one uh, last week's was prayer. So see, you can this, see the catch-all right here. There's three things and then death, um, uh, which sounds more threatening out of context. <laughs> There's three things than death uh, is a great quote out of context. Um, uh, but uh Uh, There are three things that I just want to sort of hit on briefly today um, to sort of talk about those as they were formed in the book and how I think they're important in our world. Um, And then next week we'll do the death one. So we we had the build, the plant, um, 
the order, the prayer, uh, and then work, neighbors, friends, and then next week we'll be doing death together. One that I left off um, intentionally was marriage and parenting, which is weird because it's right there in the Jeremiah passage. And two, I think that they're, um, what shall the righteous do while the foundations are being destroyed? They're two areas that are trying more than others, I think, to be usurped by the modern world and the culture we live in. Um, But then what the challenge is, is then the diagnosis becomes so responsive so fast, Um, or, or it becomes so orderly. One of the things I love about what Paul does in his household codes in the book of Ephesians is that he says, most Christians aren't aware of this, there's, there's this household codes all over the ancient world. And many of them look near to what Paul says. But what Paul does with each instance of the household code is he tilts it towards Christ, that Christ can be formed fully in their midst. He says, your culture has these things, which are half good and the adaptation they need isn't um, to be cast out but to be tilted towards who Jesus is. It makes me think that for the early church it wasn't to make a world. It was to take the world and the material that was there and then form it so that Christ could be formed in the world. The temptation to make the world is that totalitarian impulse the one that, that we always should avoid. It shows its guys today, most often in sort of Marx's thought too, is that we will be the ones to make the world. I, a classic Marx phrase, I just heard it yesterday, because uh, that's the person I am. Um, it's, the goal is not to understand, but to change. A dangerous place to be. Um, but I think that's a lot of our modern world. Or uh, was it Facebook? Their early slogan was move fast and break things? Or was that Google? Um, Google was don't be evil, which is high aspiration at that. Um, uh, that? You know what I, I always tell my children? Don't be evil. Um, uh, I come from... Uh, anyways, once you get to Mark's quotes, you, you end up thinking a lot. That idea, so the early church was meant, but they, what they had was an order. What I feel like the hard part of the world today is we are more and more saying that scripts don't matter. There is no script upon which you can build a life. It's all individually up to you to form yourself. And what we know what happens psychologically with that is people become neurotic, anxious, and depressed. To wake up at 14 and to say, you know, we have no idea of what you should do with your life and it's up for you to decide it all yourself is not good news. And we know psychologically it's not good news. Um, That's the challenge. So when we get to marriage and family, which maybe we'll do in a different sermon series, I think that's part of the challenge. One, we live in a world where there are no healthy scripts for what marriage might look like. So the question of then, how then do we tilt the the scripts that we have towards Christ becomes really hard because there are no scripts. This is why you'll find some Christians trying to adopt the household codes of the ancient Roman world and saying those are the ones that we should have. Um, might be a reasonable solution, but but I think it raises other challenges as well. Um, but I think the question for our marriages and for our parenting, the, parenting's a hard one because nobody wants parenting advice. Um, and when they do, they want parenting advice that already conforms to their expectations. 
myself included. This is, a, um, it's like the third rail of, of giving advice is like, you know what you should do with your kids? And it's like, well, I know what you should do with your mouth. Um, uh, so instead of stepping into that, um, I will just be cowardly and move on. Um, but to say that there are lots of good things out there for that. Kelly's, um, she stole one of the books I'm using for this sermon series that was in the email this past week called The Habits of Household. It's about sort of developing good habits in your household of, of prayer and meeting together. And it's very accessible. Like it's things you could actually do. It's not like I took a saint and said, here, you can be a saint too. It's a guy who admit his household was fractured. And then he tried some practices to bring their household together with, I think he has four boys. So um, it's very realistic and I can get you that book. But like I said, nobody wants advice on parenting. <laughs> so work, that's easier. Um, Work is the shortest one because I've been trying to talk about it throughout the sermon series, which is I don't, um, I've never been a part of a church I can think of that told people their work was not worthy. But I've seen Christians who are like, I knew one in Oregon who was a nurse in the cancer ward, and she'd always tell me, Matt, you know, I, I, I think I'm doing good work, but you know I'm not a missionary. And I was, was like, that's not the point. That's not the goal. Um, that, that the world she was formed in was so bent towards like, you're either out there full-time doing ministry, sharing the gospel, or you're somebody whose job is just, and this is what she said, it's just to fund those people then. I make money so that people could do that. And I was like, you treat people with terminal forms of an illness with your hands every day. Like, you exist in a battle. Um, sure, we could send you to the Congo, but you're in your own battle in your own life every day. How you touch, how you meet with people, how you um, uh, come not with resentment to work, but with joy and goodness, how you exhibit... Uh, non-anxiousness and uh, care, that is meaningful. And this is true for all your work. I, my, my parents were just here, and my brother is uh, leaving ministry to take a job managing a Chick-fil-A. Um, and he said, it, my mom said his, uh, he's struggling with that, his wife is struggling with that, you know, they were in the ministry and now they're doing this. And I told them I, I, that, you know, a lot of people, the only place that they get warm food is at a fast food restaurant. A lot of kids, their most happy memories of their parents will be not in their houses because of dysfunction that raised there, but in the schools or in the restaurants that they go to and receive warm food and time with their parents that aren't in chaos. Chick-fil-A, more than most fast food restaurants, is one that treats everybody with dignity, regardless of how rich or poor you are. The one in Grand Junction has flowers on the table. It brings, this is not a pitch for Chick-fil-A, um, but to say that even if your job is managing a fast food restaurant, it is good work. There's nothing in Defiance Church that I hope you ever hear that says, you know, what you're doing out there is less or more important than what we do in here. 
or what you could be doing with your life elsewhere. This quote from, from D.M. Hopkins will sum up what I have to say in work, and then we'll move forward. It's not only prayer that gives God glory, but work. Smiting on an anvil, sawing a beam, whitewashing a wall, driving horses, sweeping, scourging, everything gives God some glory if, being in his grace, you do it as a duty. To go to communion worthily give God's great glory, um, but to take food and thankfulness and temperness gives him glory too. To lift up the hands in prayer gives God glory, but a man with a dung fork in his hand, a woman with a slop pail, give him glory too. God is so great that all things give him glory if you mean that they should. Um, all things can give God glory. Friendship. This is, uh, I talked about marriage and, and parenting being a place in which we're being usurped. Friendship is almost dead in a lot of ways. In the book, he says that Augustine called friendship the beauty of the soul. For the ancients, um, friendship was always higher than any form of relating. Even in the modern world, we can all gasp, even higher than sex. <gasps> didn't have the effect I'd hoped. Um, uh, but friendship was to have a moral partner, to have somebody who could speak truth to you, to have somebody who could relate. And today, um, a pastor in Portland talked about this, and I realized how important it was. He pastors young people there. He said, the idea that you should show up to the things you agreed to is a skill we have to teach in our church to 20 and 30-year-olds. Yeah, I said I was coming over uh, for dinner or to help with something, but it's an hour before, and I'll just text, I'm not going to make it. Friendship dies there. Friendship dies in our light commitments to one another. I think another place that friendship dies is that we've professionalized the functions that, that friendship used to form. You go to a therapist. Now, that's not to say there isn't room for therapy, but a lot of things that people go to therapists for are like, if you had a trusted person who knew you, who you could talk that out with, a friend, it wouldn't be as necessary. Or one of the hardest things, I think, for people, if we are close, is to then speak kind truth into people's lives. There's a, I like this joke, nobody ever laughs, but... Um, the idea, uh, what is it, that, that we are to called to speak truthfully in love, modern Christians take to mean we're not supposed to speak at all because we can't think of a way of speaking truthfully in love. But in friendship, that, bound, that, that binding is possible, that we can um, have that. Um, technology, I think, is another way in which we have false friends, whether it be through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, but also in a way in which we um, think we'll solve our crisis of friendship. We'll have a response machine for ourselves. One of the pressing, most depressing articles you can read is that in aging societies, I think Japan is one of them, they've trained AI robots to sit with old people, and then they've tested that it actually works. But the idea then of human conversation working to help somebody who's lonely, having a person do it, does not occur to them. It's much cheaper to train a robot to be your friend at the end of life. 
This also was in a movie called Her, uh, which I didn't see, but a guy falls in love with what's supposed to be Siri, I think. Um, and so in the classical, uh, this is just funny to me too, is that there's uh, that friendship being higher than sex, is that men will say, more often men than women, will be like, I'm stuck in the friend zone with this girl. That's what we think of friendship. Like if you have a girl you really like and you might want to be romantic with and you're in the friend zone, that's a negative. Nobody could think of using friendship to build a relationship on. It's all lust. It's all desire. Certainly that's part of, of, of having healthy um, adult relationships, uh, marriage. But, you know, the friends, he's more of a friend. It's like, well, okay, what's wrong with that? I mean, well, I don't, I'm not attracted to him. Well, you should have said that. <laughs> um, because uh, friendship is, is the higher good in that sense. And so, too, it is, is God who calls us friends at the end of John's gospel, too. That I no longer call you servants, but friends. That we are brought into friendship with God. And so for Christians in the modern world to be people of fierce friendship... Um, neighboring, the last one, I, I lost track. Of, I told you I'd look at the clock. I did not. Neighboring. Um, the, the last chapter, the middle of the book, um, Rollheiser talks about the, the tension between soulcraft and statecraft. What is better, um, praying or being active in social justice in the world? And he says, aha, it's both. Um, I was like, cheap answer. Um, cheating. Uh, but what I would say is he uses a story which is after what um, Kim read for us today of Mary and Martha, where Mary sits at his feet and Martha says, can you tell her to help in the kitchen as well? And G Jesus tells her she's chosen the better one. I don't see how you can read that story and say both. Prayer, if we think prayer and action in the world are equal, I think we move into the place of what I call functional atheism. It's nice to pray for people, but I really need to do something. As if prayer is not doing something. And so uh, that's the one, the one spot I have drastic disagreement in the book. But more so, what he takes from that is he builds up to that society level rather than the art of neighboring, which is why we read First Love Your Neighbor as You Love Yourself and the Good Samaritan story today, because the the way, if we are going to put prayer and action together, is caring for the wounded person you come upon the road of life. The Good Samaritan does not walk out and say, my job is to pick up broken people along the Jericho Road. And the story's complex, we could talk about it longer, but needless to say, is he comes upon one like that. So there's a famous study of seminarians, I was luckily not at this seminary, where they tell them they have to address a big crowd of people, and they gave one group an hour to get there, one group 30 minutes, and one group 15 minutes. And in each case, there was an actor pretending to be wounded on the side of the road that they would have to walk by. What predicted most how the person would care for them is the amount of time they had left. The one who only had 15 minutes to get there almost never stopped to care for the actor who was in, pretending to be injured. But the one who had an hour almost always did. Space and time. Reminded of the, the novelist Jonathan Franzen who said he had road rage and because he didn't have friends, I guess, he went to a therapist to find out what he should do about it. And they said, have you tried leaving earlier? And he said that completely solved the problem of my road rage. 
like when I was driving everywhere just to make it on time, I got annoyed by everyone. But when I left 15 minutes earlier than I thought I needed to leave, the road rage disappeared. So I'm appreciative of Rollheiser in that chapter where he's combining these things together and he's saying one is not greater than the other. Although I do think prayer we need to maintain that it is the place where we meet God and God does things and we don't want to be drawn into functional atheism. But if we are going to talk about the other thing, I think it's in our neighborliness. It's in the art of neighboring. It's in the art of being close to those who are cast upon the road of life and being with them. Another Catholic talked about how when he started the Center for Contemplation and Action, I've told this story before, he thought they'd, he'd teach people contemplation and action, 50-50. And we found is everybody was doing action and nobody was doing contemplation. The Center is still called the Center for Contemplation and Ask, Action, but they pretty much only teach contemplation. We are so busy. We so want results. Taking the time to prayer taking the time to be a neighbor is a great challenge for us. So this quote, this final quote from scripture, um, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that you may daily live, so your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent upon anyone, that we would um, have this call to live quiet lives in our lives, to go deep in ourselves and with God, and to have that be a witness to the world. Psalm 11 ends with the upright will see his face. What can the righteous do when the foundations are being destroyed? Look to God who holds us fast, who cares for us and guides us, who is near to us to pray to him, to care for our neighbors, to do our work rightly. The Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Let us pray. God, you have called us as Defiance Church to be a people where there was no people. And in that, we owe all to you. All time is your time. God, may we learn to live as we look as the foundations are being destroyed in the belly of the beast of exile, patiently, quietly. May we build our homes, signs, and witnesses to your reign and order. May we plant gardens that feed our families and feed our neighbors. May we have families and marry and have children as a sign to that though the world may seem falling apart, it is your goodness that holds it together. It's our sign of faithfulness there. God, may we learn to care and to pray and to come together for worship again, being your presence as we go out. 
seeing your dignity in all people and all things. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.